a record of the delightful piece they're going to play this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Your, your attention, please. Your attention, please. Your attention, please. And now the moment we've been waiting for is here. All right. Uh, everything's good to go. All right. So, hey, everybody. It's our next episode for the podcast. Today, I'm fortunate enough and thankful to have a buddy of mine, Jack, on here. Same show as always. You're having um, Hazy Dialect helping me co-host this. You can find us on Spotify. We're looking to also move over to different platforms right now. Still getting down to raps, but for now, it's just on Spotify. Hazy? Hey, everybody. It's uh, Hazy Dialetics. You know, uh, see everything, everything in HD. So uh, we have a special guest here. So uh, we play the I don't know. I feel like I can hear some static. But I would like to introduce our guest. <laughs> Jesus. Awesome. Uh, howdy, folks. My name is Jack. Uh, I am a law school student based out of the East Coast. Uh, I'm very into politics, philosophy, all that good stuff. If you guys listen to the show, I'm sure that you get the type of people that that usually come on. Um, and I'm happy to be here today. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, yeah, so I remember finding Jack through us on, you know, Twitter spaces, but he was pretty interested, young, smart guy who talks a lot about law, talks about his experience into that. If you don't mind saying personal much, uh, would you mind sharing like, you know, your college experience? Like, you know, like, Hey, this is what I went through type thing. What would you recommend? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, man, totally. So, so I went through, uh, a very, uh, very large, uh, state school in north carolina uh actually heck you know it's, it's nc state uh, i won't i won't hold my card to the in close to the test because i don't really care uh but i went through nc state graduated there last year with degrees in finance and philosophy um and w- if if uh it, real quick solo would you like do you want me to talk talk more about and of course we can do whatever, but, but my experience in college or the, the application. Yeah, you talk about whatever you want, man. I thought that'd be um, interesting bringing it up. Like, you know, what got you there? What, I don't know, for you, what was interesting for you to get you into this field, basically? Totally, totally. So the, for, for me, I came into college sort of, as I suspect most kids do, sort of, you do college because you're supposed to, you know, it's, it's something that you're just expected to do growing up. Uh, I was not, the most academic guy in high school, and that led to me not getting into some colleges that I probably could have gotten into, but but that's neither here nor there. Uh, long story short, I wound up at NC State, and you know everyone uh, everyone kind of wants to be a member, a part of a good major is the is the sort of moniker. You know, you want to be a, a finance guy or an accounting guy, or a, or you want to do econ, something like that. There's this huge encouragement that you see at, at most colleges, and I experienced this at state, this sort of pressure to go into into what's considered a good major, something that's really serious, got to make you money, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I was a accounting major for the first year and a half, just about. Uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, about a year and a half. And I hated it. I mean, I, I can't even explain. 
you know, I was decent enough at accounting. I was good at it. Um, but I really found myself just not fulfilled. I, I've always been fairly religious. Uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes in my youth, it was more of a sort of spiritual, you know, oh, I'm vaguely Christian, you know, I'm a, I'm a non, or non-denom guy. Well, I was raised Methodist, uh, but we didn't take it super seriously. You know, we went to church on Sundays, and that was basically it. And as I proceeded through college, I found this, uh, you know, this fundamental lack of, of calling to the profession that I had signed myself up for. And so uh, in my in, I guess, the second semester of my sophomore year, I wandered into a philosophy class. I think it was, uh, what was it? It was ancient philosophy, so, so you know, Aristotle, Plato, so on and so forth. And I, I wandered my, my way into this class and uh, sat down. It wasn't even on my schedule. I just kind of slapped it on, or wandered in and slapped it on eventually. And I just loved it from the, from the jump. We were talking... Uh, I think we started with Plato and then uh, Aristotle, who who remains maybe my favorite philosopher. But all of a sudden, I found this, uh, you know, appeal of something, uh, this sort of uh, serious intellectual quality in that in that sort of stuff that you just don't really get in a lot of what are considered good majors. And that's not to say that that no one who is an accountant or a finance guy is really smart. Of course, there are plenty of guys that are really smart. But I think that those fields do not reflect uh, a real a real uh, search for anything beyond okay, what's going to make me money this next day, and that that I think is really distinctly what I found lacking in uh, the the business field. Um, however, at this at this point, I was pretty far far along in my career already. I had done you know three semesters of of uh, classes dedicated to accounting, and so I. Didn't want to just drop all of that. So what I did was, uh, I, I you know I took a, a couple more philosophy classes, signed up for I think three that semester, and uh, loved uh, you know loved all of them. That just confirmed this sort of instinct that I had that this was something that I was really interested in. And uh, eventually, I added that second ma- philosophy as a second major. And from there, you know, I started doing independent study, so on and so forth. Uh, and I wound up getting two degrees in the normal amount of time, which I guess I was lucky to do. I'd say uh, most most if I went into most disciplines that at that point, I probably would not have been able to finish them in just you know two and a half years effectively. Uh, but I tore through my accounting stuff. I tore through, well, I tore up my accounting stuff, I guess, and switched into finance because it was a little bit of a lighter workload. Tore through that and really just burned through my philosophy stuff. Started taking or started taking it really seriously. I found such great fulfillment in that. And what I think that points to, and I'm sorry for this rambling answer, so I hope you don't mind. Uh, but uh, what I found really, uh, I think the insight to be drawn from that is fundamentally that, uh, that when you enter, when people go into college and I'm sure if anyone's listening, they're about to go into college or even if they're in college, uh, and they've been sort of funneled into one of these majors that that they're told up and down is going to make them good money. It's going to be a nice livelihood, so on and so forth. There is great value in bucking that. And and when you come across something that you find really valuable, that you think really means something uh, or means a lot more to you than than what the prevailing winds tell you is is the right thing to do. 
then you should follow your heart to an extent. Um, you know, I, again, I'm an Aristotelian. And I think the reason is, is uber important. Uh, but there is a certain uh, uh, level at which you simply have to trust your instincts, trust your gut, and take that leap. I think it's been really great for me. It led me towards law school, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, but it led me to, towards law school, and I've found my time with philosophy incredibly fulfilling and far more uh, useful, I think, than anything that I've done in finance. I could read you know, whatever financial report you want me to read. It's not going to tell me anything about you as a person. It's not going to tell me anything about the truth or about metaphysics or about uh, truth as a whole and all of that stuff I've learned from philosophy. And so I think it's a, a great discipline and it's something that really everyone should at least uh, dip their toes into. Okay. Um, I found it quite interesting, um, the idea that you changed, um, you didn't change majors, but you added on philosophy. And philosophy, yeah. to a certain extent, is um, understanding the baseline of certain ideas or principles that you must, like you should or ought to adhere to. Um, while we look at economics and finances as a way to maximize um, basically our living arrangements and having a security in which our ongoing life is going, or whatever that trajectory might be, at the same time, I think it's very important that we also are extremely mindful that college is going to have an indefinite effect in your life. People mm -hmm. often bring up the fact that, what I mean by this is that people often bring up that going to college is paramount. It is the most tantamount thing you can do in terms of its like importance in your life and how it can change your life. Most people understand that there's a million dollar difference in terms of having an occupation through that academic field or even just picking up an occupation through a, a trade job. So mm -hmm. these are two things that people often like very much emphasize in terms of like your your well-being. But I also believe that there is a sort of like fulfillment that people often miss out on. Like financial security is one thing, but also um, uh, a, a, a sturdiness and a soundness in the mind that you're doing something that you find fulfilling is also paramount to just, well, living life, it's a sense. So mm -hmm. while people often talk about financial security, um, I would then want to ask this question, um, in terms of just philosophy, uh, what was like the thing that came to you, like immediately, that just gr gravitated to you to it? I think what, what gravitated uh, me towards it, and I, I sort of, I, I was about to touch on this earlier, and I kind of let that thread go by mistake, but but like I said, I, I was always something of a churchgoer. I, w I had this innate attraction to uh, to higher things, quote-unquote, you know, meaning uh, uh, God, questions of God, theology, so on and so forth. And I had never really done any, any in-depth theological study to that point, but I think that, uh, I, I think when it really hit me was reading, uh, was reading in, I, it was reading Aristotle's argument uh, in relation to the unmoved mover, uh, that, you know, we're all familiar with this formulation, it's fairly famous, the, the idea of, of it's essentially a cosmological argument where, we, where he can trace back through this chain of causation, the fact that there is this necessary first cause um, that that what he essentially describes without uh, knowing it, and despite being several you know hundred years before the advent of Christianity, what he effectively descri describes is the Christian God in the formulation, uh, and that was where uh, that at least that's what jumps to mind is what really hit me where I went, oh, this is infinitely more important that I understand this sort of stuff 
than than any uh, you know what's on any balance sheet of any of any firm. My uh, my experience in accounting uh, pales in comparison to the importance the, of the stuff that I uh, that you learn in some of those classes. And uh, I, th- I think that 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 was. Uh, Really, one thing that that supremely attracted me to it, and as I started to to delve more and more, I picked up a whole lot uh, of theology, particularly from uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas. And it, when I began to study this stuff more and more, I just it pointed me in towards a realization uh, about about the way that education, I think, should be properly conceived of. Because you you touched a little bit on how you know some people. Uh, for some people, for a lot of people, that the, your education, your college education, is fundamentally about, or, or at least is largely about, uh, preparing you for a job, training you to make money in the real world, and that's well and good. However, I think that that the classical uh, conce- conception of education is much better, and that and that is essentially that the job of education is not to prepare you for a trade necessarily. It may do that, but that's incidental. Uh, the job of education is to educate you fundamentally. It's, it's about, uh, 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 it's about refining your reason and, uh, exalting your virtue and making you into a, into a model citizen, not just one that can make money, but one that who is founded in a, in a, uh, worldview that is coherent and that's good, and that seeks to to uh, better society in a serious way. Because you know, I I could have gone through and been an accountant and probably be making some pretty good money right now. Uh, however, I would know nothing about how I, about why I really need to make money or why I should be uh, doing certain things with my money or, or not doing other things with my money. Uh, and fundamentally, about what. There, I wouldn't know much about what is truth, what there is, what these fundamental questions are, uh, and you know, I think that that those things are paramount to any functioning person, certainly to a religious person. I think they should that uh, they should be extremely striking to them. And so, as I you know, as I as I stumble upon this as a, as a fairly religious guy, it just kind of sent a light bulb off in my head uh, that made me go, this is what I need to be studying. This is the kind of stuff that I need to be learning. All of that other stuff is sort of supplemental. Um, but yeah, that, uh, I hope that answers the question adequately. Uh, yeah, really- did an excellent job. Um, I think uh, the bankruptcy of the soul is a reoccurring like, facet. I often find myself discussing with very like religious people, so I think it's often equally important that we got that like, that strongly illustrated by what you were saying here so i do appreciate that answer um solo was about to say something i didn't mean to cut you off my guy uh go ahead and uh, speak no you're all good i was gonna say same thing similar to my path when i tried to get when i was in the military trying to be a paralegal where i at the time didn't know yet but i took a philosophy class in high school and then we're talking about you know law order and to me i was very you know nisha nihilist pilled being like well none of this matters there is no mm-hmm. law it's all, you know, law of the strength, who is the strongest. Yeah. And then might equals right. Yeah, might equals right basically was a lot of my philosophy and it was very black pilled and thinking. And then eventually I still felt like that answer didn't satiate enough. I still felt like I had a hole in my reason and logic. Like I felt like there's something out there I'm not equating into this. Is it really that simple that we're all just brutal animals, you know, whoever's the strongest is on top? 
And then that's when I got more into, you know, like, theology at the time. I was, like, looking into that stuff. But I got into, you know, job, you know, being a paralegal, learning more about, like, hey, this is law, this is order. Like, what are these, these things? What is objective? What is subjective? And I find it interesting. Like, me and you both kind of, like, what did, led to the same conclusion. And what did that bring us to? But to theology. And for me, I think the argument that got me really, like, thinking again was the clockmaker argument where a buddy told me, you know, the complexities of the universe and the probability of, like, our existence, let alone intelligent existence, he would explain it like this. He's like, imagine right now I give you, like, an 1800s-era clock, like those old-school hand clocks mm-hmm. you have. He says, I'm going to take it apart piece by piece to the smallest cog, put it all in a nice, tiny little box for you, close it and hand it to you. I'm like, okay. He says, now I want you to shake that box as hard as you can, until you open it again, and it's a perfectly designed clock that works and, you know, gets back together. To me, like, I know it sounds cheesy, but to me, like, that actually stuck with me. And then he followed it up with, like, told him, like, that's impossible. There's no way you could do that. And he's like, okay, what do you think about the universe? Because that's infinitely times harder than what the scenario I gave you, basically. There's something that really interested me in, like, the question of, like, what is, like, it to exist? What is it to be human? And, you know, I find joy in my life servitude to christ and being able to you know be openly happy about being christian you know tell people about that as much as i can so that's something i've really enjoyed interesting enough i want to ask you both questions about it since we're all very like enamored to some degree with philosophy i want to get your ideas about nihilism since i think we've all touched upon the subject matter to some degree but mm-hmm. i wanted to know that it had any like um direct um, effect on your life in any um, degree on your perception of reality and what it is. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so when we say does nihilism have an effect on on my life, it's a, it certainly has in the sense that there were periods where I was nihilistic. Uh, there was a there was a period in particular during freshman year uh, of college and and I guess early sophomore year really too where I effectively stopped going to church. And again, I was I had not been exposed to anything in the field of philosophy. And, and uh, so I wasn't thinking about these issues very deeply. And I think that one thing that, you know, we can praise Nietzsche here and there for his for his pure reason and his his ability to logic his way to things. Uh, and, and the fact that he does have, I, I, I suppose, some good insights in the absence of God, it, were God not to exist, then Nietzsche's philosophy would make, would be a lot more sensible, I think. Um, it, and to that end, I, for, there was a period where I was essentially living without God. And, and uh, with that being the case, you know, I think that there are, uh, there is a very clear uh, attraction to nihilism in the sense that most, if not all, really, uh, moral systems that are built pure, in purely secular fashion, I think, don't stand up to reason. I mean, th- there was the, maybe the most famous attempt at doing this is Kant. Kant's, uh, 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 sorry, Kant's formulations with fear, with uh, pure reason, where he tries to build uh, this this worldview off of the categorical imperative, where it, where he you know he tries to make this purely secular uh, philosophical system and ethical system that could uh, structure society in a really effective way uh, purely through his, through the light of his own natural reason. And this is uh, what I think is the error of the Enlightenment, is that that's 
very clearly impossible. I mean, Hegel, uh, uh, in one fell swoop, in in a small article, uh, completely annihilates uh, Kant's system because he he points out that all of Kant's uh, uh, moral precepts. are in fact present, even even when he is just saying that that what he's saying is purely reasonable. He assumes certain things uh, are good and bad. The, the famous formulation that that I've heard is uh, is that if you if you take the maxim, the moral proposition that uh, let's say I am a a crazy lawn care enthusiast. Uh, I'm I'm obsessed with my with the with the well being of my lawn, and I think that if anyone steps on my lawn, I should act murder them and drag their body off my lawn. Uh, and I'm entitled to, to do that. That maxim uh, actually passes Kant's categorical, categorical imperative because the, the, and for anyone who doesn't know the way that the categorical imperative works it, in this question would effectively be, uh, do you want uh, anyone who comes onto your lawn to get act murdered? Yes, okay, that passes stage one. Uh, if you universalize that maxim, doesn't contradict anything. So, so if you universalize that maxim where everyone would act murder anyone who came onto their lawn, does that contradict your your the well being? Does that damage the well being of your lawn? The answer is no. Uh, so it can be universalized without contradicting without contradicting itself. And the third uh, step is: Do you think that this is still a good maxim? Do you think that this is still a good proposition? And that lawn care enthusiast would still answer yes, because he believes that everyone should want to act murder anyone who comes onto their lawn. So uh, this is the, the sort of, that's the sort of Hegelian rebuttal to Kant, uh, is that his, his, uh, his categorical imperative is what he calls an empty formalism. It's this kind of uh, uh, mechanism without any purpose behind it and without, it, without any uh, real basis to it. And I think that that is a completely correct Finding from from Hegel, I think that uh, fundamentally all moral systems, other than really nihilism, uh, must be based on something that is uh, that is a brute fact uh, that is simply there that you can't uh, deny. And in in most cases, I think that that item is God. Um, and and some people can say believe that you can base one off of. Oh, a prevailing culture or sort of prevail or popular opinion. I think that that's wrong, but it's certainly stronger than saying that you can just build a a entire society off of pure reason. Uh, so, you know, I think that that uh, that in lieu of God, you are simply left with uh, nihilism overwhelmingly, and so I think that's the attraction to so, to so many people, and I think that that's that's why I was that way when I wasn't. Uh, you know, a church going Christian. For me, I'd say definitely. Um, when I was, I don't know about you, Jack, when I was going through my atheist phase as well, I ended up being really heavy into Nietzsche and reading a lot of his works. And like I said, for people who don't understand philosophy, you have like on one end, you know, people like St. Thomas Aquinas, who's very heavy in theology, natural law, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. where you'll have the complete polar opposite of a man, known, a German man known as Nietzsche, to be like, actually, God was real, but we killed him. We slain God, yeah. basically. And he was the polar opposite, where it is a very cold, dark world out there, basically. And at the end of the day, there's no room for apathy or empathy if you want to survive. 
you got to like fend for yourself, you know, and do your own thing and become your own individual and basically step on others. And it was a very brutalistic view. And I say this and I do not say this lightly, but I felt like Nisha was truly an atheist. And what I mean is a lot of people nowadays who claim they're atheist and stuff like that aren't really atheists. And I'd say a good 9% of them. And what I mean is like you have this new age movie like Sam Harris and stuff. These people, you have Nisha though. Nisha would say like flat out like, yes, I as a mere mortal decree here that God does not exist. Not that, oh, well, I don't think God exists, but there's no evidence for that. That's the new age atheism. And then it pisses me off because I'll always ask a new age atheist this question. I'll say to them, they'll be like, oh, I'm atheist. I'm like, okay, so you decree that, you know, God does not exist. That is your statement. That is your priori. And they'll respond with, oh, no, that's a bit strong. I'm more than certain that he doesn't exist. I'm like, okay, but if you're nothing but absolute in this statement, it's how heavy of a toll atheism weighs on people. You are not. Yeah, you're not a real atheist. I'm not trying to say that to be smug, but I had a certain respect in a weird way because I saw Nisha and his work and literature almost to be like a sweet poisoned wine if that makes sense it was very alluring and it makes you feel powerful but the crash just isn't worth it because at the end of the day you have a man who up front stands against god and said he has slain him but on top of that says i also have my own moral theory made by a mere mortal to replace you and that's the issue you have with all these philosophers regardless of what they are you have hume people like that I'm sorry, but if you try to slay, you know, God itself, the very essence and concept of divine and replace it with a moral man-made theory, you're going to leave a gaping hole in you. And that's what I felt most of the time I was reading Nisha. Like, I would tell myself, like, yeah, I'm the strongest. You know, I'll step on those to get my positions. But it felt hollow. It felt empty, basically, Mm -hmm. you know. And then that's when I realized, you know, like, here comes, like, almost like the wine cup. You have that same wine cup that's the poison, and then here comes, you know, me reading about uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, reading about Christ, Kierkegaard, people like that. And it was almost, it's why I always say Kierkegaard is the polar opposite of Nisha. It was almost like having that cup of wine that's full to the brim, and then someone coming through with a, like, carton of water and just slowly start pouring more and more. Until eventually, all of this poisoned wine is out, and it's purified water in its place. And to me, that was my salvation. That was my grace. That was me going back into the theology and trying to learn and understand it. Because I told myself, I remember making a promise when I went back into the faith. I said, okay, I'm going to do it different from last time. Last time, I just, you know, was like, eh, I was there. I'm actually going to try my hardest to get into apologetics, to understand these arguments. Am I going to be the best out there? Of course not. There's many phenomenal speakers I know, like John, we were speaking to him earlier. Hey, shout out to you, John, if you're listening to this. Or people who are like, you know, Trent Horn or like William Lane Craig, who are phenomenal at speaking. And that's just one of my thing. I'm like, I want to emulate these men so I can get closer to Christ, basically, and be a better representation of my faith and defend it. Because at the end of the day, all of your material goods aren't coming with you to where you go. Like, no one, when you pass away, no one's going to read off your eulogy. This man had, you know, Rolex watches. He had a brand new Mercedes. He had women and alcohol and stuff like that. All that's really going to matter are the people surrounding you in your life and saying things like he was a good father. He was a good grandfather. He was a good uncle. He was a strong man. He led, you know, the family. He was the anchor for us. You know, he truly was keeping us together, stuff like that. He was a man of Christ. He was a man who seeked Christ's heart. 
And to me, deep down, when I'm to go, I don't care if I had millions. I don't care if I have, you know, anything like that. I don't care if I'm filthy rich. I'm okay dying, you know, like my rags and stuff like that. What matters to me is my family around me. And I want to be remembered as the person in my family that led my family through these hardships, through Christ bearing. But so everyone on a bit of a ramble or a rant, but that's my personal thing. No, that's man. fine. Um, I thought it was important because um, while being the only uh, agnostic person in the crowd, yes, I am the uh, apostle amongst all this Christian talk and all this <laughs> Christian jibber-jabber uh, uh, going on here. What is happening right now? What is this, uh, 6 o'clock in the morning? What, what, what he say? Never would have made it without you? Uh, I, <laughs> no, all jokes aside, um, I had a very different experience with like nihilism, and I find it to be particularly interesting in contrast to what you guys have talked about and discussed at length at this time. Because for me, nihilism has always been a kind of a plaguing thought, like a, 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 a constant in my um, thought processes. Um, well, as uh, rejecting the um, the negativity that it, um, is birthed from it, I kind of felt as though I needed to accept it to some degree because it was constantly an emergent idea within my brain. Um, this notion that like nothing matters, nothing is like prosperous and like ultimately looking upon some of these um, philosophers, achievers, all these individuals with sudden levels of accolades, um, no matter the contribution to society would all uh, return to dust at one point or another. Um, return to ash or return to dust uh you know um the inertia uh the idea of um you know the universe returning to a a a constant to from a moving state to a to a, a stillness uh it's, it's always been a fascination of mine as as i've um, listened to people like Charles gambino or Kanye West, these artists who uh, constantly discuss the idea of like a legacy and sitting that lives external of yourself and these things often made me fascinated about even more about the idea of nihilism and for me the rejection of nihilism didn't come through because some people believe that it, that um you know none of this matters and that kind of like like disengages the ability to have agency within society or life as it mm. is um for me the acceptance of that is like okay inconsequential of like my actions the inevitability of death is for certain but i believe that 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 finite amount of time, that like that existence in of itself, makes everything I do more important than ever. Because with knowing that certainty is 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 beyond any action I can take upon it, that means that I should prioritize the immediate time I have for the people I have in this world, and to ensure I can do whatever I can to maximize my life. So like that was like a um that was a fascinating. So why I asked that question because it was fascinating to me to hear people like different rattlings with these ideas. Um, I've always been somebody, I guess, as I came into my adulthood, I was somebody who like accepted that notion of like negativity as being a part rather than like um, having, find a way to detach myself from it. Cause I don't think that it could have been detached rather than be accepting or um, how fascinating philosophy allows us to look at something that has been a constant in our mentality or our mindset and allows us to angle it in such a way in which it ameliorates whatever um poison as solar um poetically put um is causing within us so um that's hey, why hey, i uh, well, I, I wanted to speak to do, so. do you mind if i if i have a bounce off comment off of that real fast uh, absolutely I, so so i i understand what you mean to uh, to a degree that that if this is truly all that there is and when we 
when we die, we, you know, just take a dirt nap and, and let the worms feed on our brains, then we should make the most of life. I, I understand that interpretation. And I think it's uh, a, go- a very good instinctive response to, to the nihilist uh, uh, view of, of the way that the world is ordered, the, the, you know, the nihilist epistemolo- epistemological view. Uh, however, I, my, my instinctive uh, uh, question, and now I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, uh, I guess what I'm trying to, to get, ask is uh, fundamentally, even if that's the case, even if the nihilist epistemological worldview is correct, uh, well, if it is correct, then why affirmatively should you do these things? This is sort of this this sort of comes back to what I was talking about with that Hegelian rebuttal of of Kant. Uh, is, and my I guess the, my question is why should you seek to uh, uh, benefit the well being of your family, or why should you uh, really do anything at all if the nihilistic worldview is correct? Because it seems that if there is no uh, you know, if we've killed God, if there is no higher power that ordains things, if there is no uh, objective right and wrong beyond might makes right, uh, then who is to say fundamentally, other than the strong, uh, what is right, I guess? Uh, do you know what I mean? Well, as the uh, filthy, filthy, vile, and uh, disgusting liberal, uh, not not liberal, but leftist <laughs> upon the, uh, the discourse amongst the, the two of you, I would have to say that, like, what comes back to my mind is just how most political systems implicitly work to some degree. Um, most people who, even the most anarchist people who strive for this notion or idea of, oh, I'm out for myself, more than often than not, it often goes back to this intuition, this pump that I believe exists sure. within all of us when it comes to logic and reasoning. And that is that most emotions are like the innate aspect of our moral reasoning confines. And then we formulate that through like logic. So like that's the ad hoc nature of like our like our, our belief systems and how they function. So like the articulation of this is usually that we're looking towards people who are trying to put produce some sort of moral good. And the moral good in this sense is just like betterment of like life and the maximization of like that within the society in itself. Like when people often look at like conservatism or let's say um, democracy to some degree, um, it's all these ideas that are, are attempting to con- uh, quantify what exactly um, like creates a good life in a sense. And sure. That understanding, that understanding for me was the reason why I, I, I do my best in terms of discourse in general to not propose some sort of um, like bad faith actor amongst the people that I discuss most subject matters with, um, unless I believe that there is a lack of transparency as to what you're talking about, in which is then I might be more apprehensive engaging mm-hmm. with you or might be extremely critical as to what you're saying. I might want to get to the baseline of what you're talking about. But more often than not, I believe that all these systems to some degree are talking about the quality of life and which, how and when can we maximize that. So I try to operate within that confine. And that's like the implicit like notion that I often engage with when I'm like in dealing with society. And I think that and I think this universal facet often is espoused by most philosophy systems, even the most um, hardcore punk rock metalist 
that you could think of who is a nihilist speaks about the, the bleakness of society, the dreadness and the meaningless of, of existence often does not kill themselves. And I believe that that speaks up to this, at least this uh, contradiction of you do wish to live life in, um, in a better way. But I think that either failings uh, internally or failings externally are causing you to like detach yourself from life to all find it meaningless. Rather, I think that um, in terms of society and our existence, we often partake into this quality of life, um, like um, production, in which um, my, implicit, my implicit engagement with that is to try to ensure that, like, in the most simplistic way I can put it, without going to my whole philosophical, like, confines, I think that, like, understanding this, or at least that is my implicit um, buy-in, philosophically speaking, of, like, how, like, almost most philosophical systems operate, I often, like, engage with society and living in that manner. I hope that was concisely put enough. Yeah, no, I got it. Um, Jack, how do you think about this? I actually want to ba- bounce this off of you regarding Hazy's point. I've almost, in a weird way, have you seen that meme where it's like an IQ graph for the person of low IQ? There's middle IQ and high IQ, but the low IQ and high IQ people agree. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, it's just like I felt like going through philosophy. Low IQ was, you know, almost being like, you know, philosophy is just how to live your life, and then. You have middle IQ being like, oh, no, there's so many d- intrinsic meanings for philosophy. And high IQ is like philosophy is telling you how to live your life type thing. And I joke around, but to me, I feel like even politics, philosophy bleeds into politics. Like that's where we, politics come from. And same with law and all these factors. But what people don't ask is where does philosophy come from? And a lot of philosophy comes from religion. Oh, even the ancient Greeks, they were, you know, although they were um, polytheistic, they still had a very mono view and some essence of what it is to be divine or God. And what really interests me too, is I look at philosophy now, especially, you know, post enlightenment and philosophy has evolved. You have people like Rousseau, where it's more of philosophy of the man instead of philosophy divine by God, if you will. Sure. While you have even like the Islamic people, um, what's his name? Ilbe Salba, I believe. Apologies if I'm butchering his name, but one of the guys who were like, you know, constantly spar of St. Thomas Aquinas, basically mm-hmm. in philosophy at the time. But even them, they all came to the same agreement that philosophy is nothing if not led by God or if not based on God. And I look at it like this as one, when, if you're wondering too, Hazy is bouncing your question. But do you see almost as philosophy to be a way to understand things while theology is a way to live things, if you will? Um. Like. Seeing like philosophy as almost a tool to get you there, if that makes any sense, basically. And theology is the big picture. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that first uh, way of putting it, I didn't totally understand, but the second way, yes, absolutely. I think that that uh, there's a there's a way there's a classical sort of formulation that that I always forget the exact way that it goes, uh, but it is essentially that. We have all these different schools of philosophy, right? You know, ethics, epistemology, so on and so forth, um, metaphysics, yada yada. And uh, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, uh, what you find over and o- and over again is this, uh, in my opinion, undeniable fact that the theology is effectively what every, where everything else springs from. Uh, if your theology says that there is no God and that there is uh, – fundamentally, if it says that there is no God, uh, then you cannot uh, make many serious uh, uh, 
you know, uh, other school, uh, other philosophical thoughts off of that. And I don't think that you can can order society adequately uh, according to that. And I think that that a lot in that too. Sorry to cut you off really quick, but William Lane Craig, I remember him being posed a question in Q and A where someone asked him smugly, "Do you believe atheists can be moral?" And he pondered on it, and he says, "I believe atheists can understand what morality is." My issue, especially when it goes to all subjectivity, is you have no grounds of justification. They don't understand why. Yeah, you don't understand why. And to me, that stood out because he posed an analogy of, you know, let's say you're walking home at night and you see someone getting murdered. You're like, stop, don't do that. That's bad. And almost in a weird pseudo twist is like, well, why? And then that question really like slams them was like, well, you're just sitting there like, yeah, what is my justification? Because you don't like it because it doesn't make you feel good. Like, what is your grounding on this reasoning? Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like you're looking at it too deep, but when we're talking about theology, I feel like that is, yes, that I am yeah. talking about as deep because that is a very deep subject of divine hiddenness and all these very moving pieces. And I don't know, I was just wondering your thoughts on that too. Like, Yeah, I mean, this this is correct. I, th- I think that, uh, and, and of course, atheists sort of like to laugh off this argument that, that you can't, uh, really know anything about anything if you can't posit the existence of god um how they'll sort of uh, you know laugh it off and and act as though it's no big deal because you can just make your own uh philosophy of course that's that's transcendentalism that's not even nihilism uh really but even even in the transcendentals you run into this same problem when they're actually pressed on it is that they have no justification for their beliefs beyond uh, sort of either popular uh, beyond sort of stop gaps they have uh, okay well i think that murder is wrong because popular belief says that murder is wrong or i think that yeah people who uh, base morality on society and i'm anytime i see that i'm like okay if you're going to base your pure morality on like, let's say science or law or like, you know, society, that's a very dangerous slippery slope because what's stopping you from being an area like, you know, World War II Germany, basically. And now you're like, oh, I'm just going with the flow of society. You know, I'm pure Aryan or whatever, or, you know, being in a Jim Crow slough, being like, oh, well, you know, society says these aren't people because of the pigments of their skin. So I'm just going to roll with that. That's why they have less rights than me. Like, I find that to be very dangerous mindset, just, you know, kind of like a group thing, agreeing with everything type thing, what the crowd says, and that, that could be very dangerous. Totally. I, th- I think that the only two um, fundamentally coherent worldviews are those which are based off of uh, uh, religion, uh, you know, that can posit the existence of God who has a certain will and who has ordained things in a certain order. And that's why we should do these things this way. Uh, And and the only other entirely consistent one is a true and pure nihilism that does not fade into a sort of uh, uh, transcendentalism where they effectively admit, uh, yes, there is no absolute right or wrong. The only reason that, uh, the only reason that I can even say that anything is right or wrong is because I'm stronger than you and I can enforce my will upon you. Uh, if you can say that, then then your worldview is coherent. It's, uh, I think, again, it's wrong. Uh, however, it is at least uh, entirely non-contradictory at the end of the day. If, if, my, if, if my make right uh, and I'm a nation that says that uh, 
baby murder is permissible, then I can enforce my will upon my or upon my society. Uh, however, if I'm, uh, it, I think that what what so many uh, nihilists stray into, uh, and what makes so much of their worldview incoherent, uh, is that they try to. Uh, uh, claim at the same time that there is no God, there is no absolute morality, uh, and yet all of these things that I don't like are objectively wrong. They're not just wrong in this, for this society or this society where with this governing body, they are objectively wrong, and that's why we can uh, that's why we can you know send oodles of money into foreign countries in order to preserve democracy or in order to uh, uh, in order to put certain ethical views of our nation uh, despite there being no God. I think that that is in, internally inconsistent. Uh, and I think it fails fundamentally just about every serious philosophical inquiry. And one last thing, and I'm going to let Hazy, sorry about that, Hazy, for going back and forth a bunch. My ADD is kicking in, and I know <laughs> if it else is, I'll forget it. Um, another good example, too, what you're talking about is like people don't know, people like to talk bad about the history of the Catholic Church, but they don't know. I always ask this question to people like in America, who do you think was the Ku Klux Klan's biggest enemy, their biggest person? <laughs> get over and people will be like oh the black panthers or oh this group or this group i'm like nope historically since the beginning it's been the catholic church because you'll have the catholic church saying like hey i don't think it's right for you to lynch a man because of the color of their skin and then they're like oh well you know god told us to do this and we're like no they didn't and then it no, pissed them off yeah. because they'd be like, like well we're basing our faith off of this therefore it's okay and i don't it's one of those things where if an atheist tries to slander like a falsism, I don't care. Like I feel almost sympathetic to them, and like you poor little thing. And I'm not trying to sound demeaning, but to me, it's like I understand why you don't like us because to you, you view us as your enemy. When to me, I view you as a brother. But like when I see someone who's like you know wears the mark of like you know a cross or say I'm a Christian, and they're doing horrible names in the name of Christ, it pisses me off because I'm like no. Christ didn't say, you know, basically discriminate and harm others for these things. Like that's disgusting. That's not Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, and, the fun, the yeah. fundamental, the fundamental uh, Protestant issue, and and I say this as a as an Anglican. Uh, Anglicans, we you know we like to say, people will lump us in with Protestants, but we really are in many respects. Uh, sort of, we have the Catholic uh, foundations of our faith, and that we you know we. Uh, uh, we ascribe to the Archbishop of Canterbury in the place of the Pope, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and fundamentally, I think that the issue that that so many Protestants, and this is particularly the case with uh, Baptists and non-denominational uh, and, and Pentecostals too, really run into is that I think that the doctrine of, of uh, Sola Scriptura, whatever you want, or, or if you would like to say, you know, preach alone, whatever, uh, uh, name you want to put on it. I think that the the just the individual nature of it, uh, which allows a man to interpret the Bible however he would like and uh, and effectively make his own brand of Christianity. Uh, I think that that enables people uh, to to ignore fundamental parts and fundamental truths that are that are not deniable from any realistic standpoint. Of the faith, uh, one thing that I have a great deal of respect for in the Catholic tradition, and and this is also present in the Anglican tradition, is that we have established ways 
uh, in which we are positively supposed to view scripture, in which we are uh, doctrines which we are ordered to have, not not uh, that are optional, not that are uh, sort of oh, this is what my minister says, so this is right. But no, that we actually believe that these are divinely given uh, uh, ordinances that we should follow in all circumstances if we're able. Uh, and of course, that's not to say that no Catholic or no Anglican has ever done anything wrong. Of course, you have people who, who act improperly and contradict their faith. Uh, it is to say that the the uh, Baptist tradition, for instance, uh, cannot ultimately refute the uh, the arguments of people who say, oh, I'm a, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan because the uh, Holy Spirit told me to. Uh, you know, that's uh, my little bounce off of that. But yeah, sorry, we've been going for a while. I don't yeah, my bad. You need to go. I feel bad. Hey, you didn't I'm need to leave. Like, yeah, theology I get into, I get Bible thumper. I'm like, I got to pop off real quick. One moment. <laughs> You two were having a whole vibe off session without me. I was like, all right. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Um, it's also, um, I would say to some degree that all of it's like, I think it's very fascinating to just discuss in, in, at, at length. Um, in terms of just the um, idea about morality and wh- where does it come from to some degree, because I think that's where a lot of this is pinpointing at. And I think that it's very hard to find like uh, people who are devout, like believers of the faith that don't have like some sort of epistemic, like a foundation for as to why they believe a particular thing or something or can articulate it well enough beyond just saying that it is repugnant or immoral and it is the word of the God to speak as much uh, into existence. Um, while like the milk, uh, uh, if a woman is um, unfaithful, there is moments where like in, um, in terms of like infidelity, there's moments um, in, within scripture that speaks to us like give her this uh, milk and she's like lying with deceptive about like her faith. I mean, deceptive about like what she has told you then like she would, she, her child would pass, which is basically uh, criticism. Like I would say like it's comparable to, like, to um, abortion to some degree, but it's not like the way that it's handled within like larger society in terms of um, just people getting them on the whim or like not being financially capable of doing so. Like they, they don't believe that a child isn't alive per se, but mm-hmm. it's just having an abortion because it is an inconvenience in some degree. So like, that, that's like a drastically different thing we can just expect that is uh, occurring there. But at the same time, in terms of what you were talking about earlier, I don't, I don't, I would have never posit that like um, my morality is a, uh, I, w- I would say that most people would be, if they're atheists, I don't think, I, I think it'd be like a slap in your own face. Like literally almost like a cartoon, Tom and Jerry, uh, the garden hose hits you in the face moment. If you were to ever say that morality is objective while simultaneously believing in there be, be no omniscient rules that exist within the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but at the same time, I would say that um, in terms of, um, in terms of just um, religious beliefs, I, I oftentimes hear it. I'm a very much a um, advocate of just people being more articulate about those type of things. And just I, I like even host, hosting like talks like me and Sola have like host talk, which is uh, just purely just having religious people talk back and forth about such matters. And I just enjoy those spaces a really a lot because I don't think they I don't think I don't think there's a lot of productive spaces in which it's um, I think also it's kind of 
concerning to some degree. Like, let's accept. I I often look at people who do accept um, the notion of like a god or omniscient being that like, is this unquestionably a part of what particular faith they do have. And while I do believe that some people can go rapid with their own interpretation, because I don't believe that um, simply by having religion, it behooves you to have an objective observation as to reality it is, because some people go astray with that interpretation. Some people defile said interpretation. Some people go as far as to exploit said interpretation, such as um, one of the biggest churches down in the South being unwilling to help people out during a flood um, certain instances of those of those mega churches that exist are just a bastardization of the word and how it's supposed to help its common man. But at the same time, I understand that like simply ex- having that um the, 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 that wealth of knowledge as the Bible would be treated um, by people who have by by just religiosity and people who um um can be can find solace in it it can be also be used in a misguided way which at the same time i I was totally yeah real fast to bounce off that i'm not uh, i don't think that that uh just to clarify my position i'm not saying that that every christian is uh morally upright or even that that the vast majority of christians have the correct interpretation of scripture Uh, i think that that all of human, all of the development of human religion uh, is a pursuit toward the toward the correct interpretation of uh, scripture or revelation or of, of God, um, and and I think that we, to to respond to what you said about uh, certain denominations that have these abhorrently, obviously incorrect uh, uh, interpretations of scripture, my basic response is their their view of "Quote unquote, uh, quote unquote, moral objectivity is incorrect. Uh, I mean, just at at ground level, there are things that you can find. You know, in the in the Baptist tradition, you can you can't really pin down uh, a great number of Baptists on on any given thing because they only believe certain uh, they they only uniformly believe certain things, such as the the Apostles' Creed, so on and so forth. And there's there there's this great variance uh, in the Baptist tradition as to uh, their interpretation of of scripture verse by verse, and what I kind of was referring to when I talked about the the Catholic and Anglican interpretation uh, is that there is this uniformity to it uh, that discourages that variance, and therefore I think, it, for one thing, I, it, it generally uh, strays into error less because you have less of a uh, you have just a, a pure smaller number of amalgamations of different interpretations of, of scripture. Uh, and I think it also is generally closer to the truth because there are many more real academic and uh, 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 I guess searches uh, in those traditions. The same goes for Presbyterians to an extent. Presbyterians have some really good theology. Um, but yeah, th- th- does that make sense? I, I mean, I'm not saying that that uh, all Christians are correct in their interpretation because obviously that would just be impossible because we have conflicting interpretations. Yeah, um I I was um I was really um that was a part that stuck out to me, so I'm glad you uh, uh alleviate. I was I was I was thinking about it in, in that regard of like can the same be said for like some sort of some some observations I would certainly say that do exist within society are definitely like an issue and um how they uh are, are ascertained or what what is ascertained from people when they when you take upon 
certain um, biblical scripture because I don't think that people. Um, <laughs> hey, oh my bad. One second. Uh, just that was my bad. I cut out. If you. Okay. Um. Sorry, I don't know what happened. Please go on. <laughs> no, sorry, guys. I'm okay. Still here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah. I, um, I think that. Here. I think. I think that. I think that can perfectly wrap up our discussions about um philosophy. I think it was engaging, and hopefully, we can have another space, or even invite you over for another episode. But as a law person, as an individual who's uh you know really thumping a different type of book, you know, a person who's uh into the politics, into the larger picture, you know. Uh, as a leftist, I don't think any politics exists. Actually, it's just the grand But I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of pol political discourse and affirmative action, um, what do you think is a large misconception about its functionality that people often don't bring up in social discourse or just in common parliaments? Yeah, are, are we talking, just to be, make sure that I'm clear on the question, are we talking about the functionality of, of law writ large or, or of uh, affirmative action specifically. I don't want to yeah, stray. Affirmative action. Okay. Affirmative action, yeah. uh, sure. I think that, that, uh, well, let's see, misconception. I, th I think that one misconception that we, uh, tend to have is, and this, this may sound overzealous, but one, one conception, misconception that tends to arise is that, uh, affirmative action as it existed until this recent decision, uh, was sort of, even-handed. Uh, there, there's this notion in sort of pop culture, and, and particularly among the the sort of middle IQ folks, that, that affirmative action is uh, is sort of marginal. It's decided in marginal cases that it's in line with um, the, the big, the famous decision is Bach, uh, where Sandra Day O'Connor, who wrote the majority opinion, uh, said of the Supreme Court, said that. Uh, that race can essentially be used as a tiebreaker in academics. So if you have a white student with a uh, SAT of, say, 1360 and a 3.9 GPA, and you have a white student with the exact same stats, that then it's used as a sort of tiebreaker to, to – uh, give favoritism to the to the African American student, uh, and and that kid gets admitted, and the white white kid doesn't. That that I think is sort of the common conception of, in a lot of people's minds, particularly a lot, a lot of uh, liberals' minds, of how affirmative action worked. And the fact of the matter is, that's not how it worked at all. Uh, I mean, I've got a, there's a there's a wonderful study that uh, I, we spoke a little bit about before we went live, but it's called for anyone who wants to read it. It's called the Systemic Analysis of Affirmative Action in American Law Schools. It's by Richard Sander, and the reason that it's that it's a uh, study of law school is that law schools have much better records kept than uh, than do general colleges. But uh, and what he found uh, was essentially that uh, this was not just a tiebreaker, uh, but rather it, in direct contravention, actually, be of that Bach decision, uh, what the practices of the overwhelming majority of schools in the country did was that it essentially insulated uh, races from competing with one another uh, on the academic scale. So, so the way that he uh, puts it is that he, he, sort of, he derives a 
a academic index, uh, I think is the phrase that he uses, which is sort of a, it's a conglomeration of undergraduate GPA and your LSAT score. The LSAT score is the law school admissions test. Uh, and it's sort of the, the SAT for law school. And what he found uh, was that there were these gargantuan uh, discrepancies in, uh, in the academic quality that it took for a student to uh, be admitted to a certain school that were uh, the, the the gap was caused purely according to race. So, for instance, I've got this this uh, index here. If you take a uh, student for uh, so there's a there's a chart for non minority applicants and a chart a chart for underrepresented minority applicants. And uh, if we take for instance, this is this is uh, their competitiveness. At the University of Michigan, which is a elite law school, I think they're ranked number nine this year. Um, and what you see is that uh, for a white student, we'll go with the with the median. Uh, for a white student with an academic index between the numbers uh, six hundred ninety and seven fifty, so this is a good, a very good student who scored reasonably well. Uh, actually, for Michigan, it would have to be by most standards, very well on the LSAT score. You're probably scoring about the 90th percentile in LSAT, and you've got a strong GPA. For a white student in that circumstance, you have a 23% uh, chance of being admitted to the University of Michigan. Um, for a black student with a uh, well, not for a black student, excuse me, for an underrepresented minority applicant uh, you have, who has the same academic index, scored the same on on. Uh, the LSAT and has a similar GPA. He has a 93% chance, so that's a 70% discrepancy in in the difference of chances. Can we reiterate those numbers one more time? Sure. So if you've got a if you take a black student and a white student, I'm just going to try to standardize it. Uh, who have a academic index score between 690 and 750. So again, this is you're doing well. Uh, the black student has a 93% chance of being admitted to the University of Michigan Law School, which is, again, a great school. And for a white student with the same numbers, he has a 23% chance. So it's 93 versus 23. Uh, and so I guess with that, and there are all sorts of different uh, charts and, and tables in this study that demonstrate this a little bit further at, and in more extreme terms, uh, what you see Dollar. is that it, what, yeah, please. sorry about that, guys. Um, yeah, you're here. The messages. Um, you're good. Jack, uh, yeah. really quick. Uh, I can wrap up. You. No, you don't have to wrap up, man. I actually want to like go more on your point and more in depth. Didn't this whole like affirmative action thing debate like spark interest because of like Asian students in Harvard, or was this yeah. something else? Yes. So, the, so the fact is that that uh, whites are. Uh, I use whites because it's sort of in the pop culture. It's more mentioned and commonly mentioned by conservatives, and that's what I tend to go uh, with. He's using he's using yeah. dominant English vernacular. This man dog whistling. Well, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just no, saying. No, no. This, this, I, this, I joke. I joke. You're good, but well, what's what's also featured, and of course, what I used at the beginning of the phrase was non-minority applicants versus underrepresented minority applicants. This is sort of academic language. Uh, underrepresented minority applicants consist of blacks, Hispanics, uh, uh, immigrants, uh, first-generation immigrants, uh, and those non-minority applicants. What they're the way that they're actually considered in the academic world that is whites and Asians. Uh, so those two groups are put together there. Um, so so. It, it is true that that whites were 
that whites have been actively discriminated against. However, just to clarify, that discrimination that you saw is even more severe uh, among Asians. I don't have a, a specific table here that, that breaks it down uh, by specific race. I just have non-minority and, and underrepresented minority. Uh, however, what, what we can expect is that for an Asian student uh, who has those same numbers, again, I said that non or non-minority applicants have a 23% chance with this, uh, with this, with, with an academic index for uh, between 690 and 750. Uh, for an Asian, you can expect that it would be even lower than 23%. It would be something somewhere in the range of 20 to, to 15%, maybe. Um, of course, that's just a, a ballpark number. But the reason I think that that it's good, and, and again, I used white just because I was talk, uh, going off the top of my head. Uh, but the reason d that it's good to use non-minority applicants uh, is that that helps standardize the, the data a little bit more because there are significantly fewer Asians than there are whites, just as a you know fact of the matter. Uh, and so there's a lot more variance in the, in the data. Um, and so adding them into the, into the white demographic, uh, that tends to make the data a little bit more streamlined and clear cut. Um, but yeah, so I think to, to come back to the original question, I think that the the chief misconception about affirmative action and the way that it, that it worked uh, was that it was this sort of even-handed. Okay, we're just giving this tiny leg up to minority applicants and, or to underrepresented minority applicants, but it's not really that unfair, and it's sort of a nice way to uh, to bring bring these uh, uh, different groups into the upper echelons of the uh, of the economic or economic and social stratosphere. Uh, the fact is that's not what happened. What really was happening was a just egregiously uh, uh, unfair and discriminatory practice that systematically uh, uh, insulated the races from competition with one another in the academic uh, uh, sorry uh, application. And that is is wholly unacceptable, as the court found. Um, and I, I'm very happy with the with the Supreme Court. Or the Supreme Court uh, has has overruled Bach. So, and that you mentioned um, that too, Hazy, really quick. Um, that you mentioned that too. Something that a lot of people don't know is that during that 1964, you know, civil rights era, the original proposition or solution on the table was that the government would actually get more investment and funding in like poor areas and like predominantly, you know, like areas mm -hmm. for minorities, like, Hey, let's fix their education. But instead the government said like, no, screw that. We'd rather give you a wheelchair than a crutch. And what I mean is like a crutch is meant for, let's say you have a sprained ankle or something. You, it helps you get back on your feet. Well, wheelchair, you're just stuck in a wheelchair. You're not getting out of that seat. You're always going to have that. And that's something that irritated me because I would have like in some weird alternative, like history scenario, I felt like, government at least making the attempt of putting more and aiding and like education in like poor areas could have done something like i'm sure it wouldn't have like solved everything but it would have done a lot better than like affirmative action did because if you go to the root of the problem yeah it always goes back to you know the like high school education middle school education like these poor areas not having the means to help people get yeah. out of scenario and education is power we see this through history and I feel like we were able to get at the root of it. That could do a lot more good, basically. Absolutely. And to make to make one, uh, to, uh, I, I hope I'm not keeping you solid, but if I can springboard into one more comment uh, based on that, what affirmative action really did 
Uh, and and this is something that a lot of people don't realize, but it's it's made very clear very clear later on in this study. I'll see if I can find the exact reference. But Thomas Sowell, uh, the the Stanford academic, has has spoken extensively about this. Uh, is that what what affirmative action caused was because there are these uh, uh, flat out uh, unqualified people who get into elite schools. What you see happen time and time again is these egregiously high dropout rates in uh, among underrepresented minorities in these elite schools. Uh, the the uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, so I won't try to give them. Uh, but you, you see throughout history, and and they're referenced in this study. Um, that that historically there have been the, these very high rates of uh, of dropout from uh, black former applicants to elite university or to elite law schools uh, who because they flat out cannot keep up and that's not to say if there aren't whites that can't keep up of course there are there there are whites that got into the schools that were legacies or who didn't uh, who just got lucky who didn't deserve to get in and they dropped out at the same rate however the fact is that if the practice of affirmative action had not had never uh, existed, that those students would not have dropped out of law school because they would have gone to a slightly worse but still very good law school. If you have an academic index of, like I said, 690 to 750, you are a very good student. You're in about the top uh, 10% of global uh, law school applicants. Uh, however, the, the top 10% of law school applicants isn't always good enough to get you into a Harvard or a Yale. In fact, usually it's not. Usually you have to be in the top 1%. And so what uh, what ultimately happened as a product of, of these affirmative action practices is that you actually have, on the whole, less net uh, black, black and Hispanic doctors, lawyers, so on and so forth, than you would have had these people gone to a school like Chapel Hill, for instance, or uh, Georgetown instead of Harvard or Yale, uh, where they will fail out. Uh, and, and this is not just a lot of people will consider this just a talking point. And again, I don't have the exact numbers, but this is borne out by the data. I would encourage anyone to read this study again. This this is called a, system, a systemic analysis of affirmative action in law schools. Uh, and Richard Sander covers all of this in that study, and he finds that that actually, on the whole, we would have more people more people in these underrepresented minority groups uh, that were practicing lawyers. If it were not for these practices, so on the whole, affirmative action did not just damage, or did not just cause harm to those groups that it obviously caused harm or harm to those being Asians and whites, but it also on the whole harms the very people that it seeks to benefit, the underrepresented minorities. Go ahead, Az. You were going to say something earlier. I didn't mean to cut you off, man. I low key genuinely forgot. But um, what I was, uh, I suppose, uh, to engage with what you just said there, um, I think that affirmative action could have potentially worked. But the problem is, is that it's essentially adding on to a problem that needed to be fixed at a fundamental level. As someone who's um, traveled a lot and had gone to drastically different schools, I can certainly say that like education is different depending on where you're at. Um, just to speak very tangentially without giving away locations, um, in terms of a school that I went to um, around uh, New York area, um, in terms of more high-end areas, um, where my parents are doing more financially like, mm -hmm. prosperous and I was able to go to a great school, 
I had read, let's say, uh, I think Mice and Men, uh, what, fourth grade, I believe. Um, but when situations and circumstances got more dour, I was moved to a more, um, you know, financially adequate place that my parents could support by themselves and was able to do so due to my father had losing his job and not working for about, I think, three years on end. Um, but what I learned from that school is that I was excelling in that school in a way that I never thought I would. And mm-hmm. one of the most troubling and concerning things about like that school, since it was my last year, um, I had learned that this book we would be reading was Mice and Men. And this was like my 12th year. And I was like, oh, so this is, this is like a really, really concerning thing about like how yeah. schools are just different and how they have different educations. And more importantly, um, how education is so drastically different in so many different areas. And I think affirmative action helps out people in, in a sense that like, if you really want to ensure that people get to the schools that they're supposed to be to, or at the very least, ensure that people are getting um, enriched with better education, academics have to be like a, a, a fundamental like thing that we look at and target at an early age, rather than pushing people to places when the, the, the acumen doesn't really um, place to where they would have been at or where they should have gone at. Um, that's why I think um, really one of the biggest problems in terms of affirmative action really ran into the majority. Yeah, this, this, this is why I think that, uh, that uh, sorry, what's the word? Um, I'm blanking hey, here. Really quick before you go into that, Jack, sorry sure. to cut in. Um, you guys, did you guys both see my text? Yes, I, well, I'll, I'll shut down. Yeah, I'm, here. No, you can keep going. I'm saying like, if you guys are okay, keep going with the podcast for like another 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, I gotta go and get this. Um, I'm really sorry about that. Just emergency thing. I'm only gonna be able to get them. Um, but hey, Jack, me personally, thanks for being on again, man. Love to have you on another time. And Hazy, thank you again for understanding, man. And yeah, I appreciate you guys both, and I apologize for the listeners and for both of you guys as well for not being able to wrap it up to the end. But no, I'm gonna have to. Take... One of those days. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those days. Literally, <laughs> we'll right, we'll uh, run it out. No, no problem, pal. Yeah, have a good one. Thank you again. Yeah. Uh, so what I was going to say was, to your point about uh, there being this great variance in how academics are, are carried out, and I actually saw the exact same thing in my experience. I went to a private school in my youth, uh, and we read, I think that we read 1984 in sixth grade. Uh, and what did we read after I went to high school in a public school uh, in 12th grade, 1984. Uh, there are certainly, I certainly agree that there are different levels of rigor uh, in different school systems. And you see this uh, very consistently. And, the, and that means that GPA is not a perfect indicator of someone's uh, academic skill. And this is why I think that, that aptitude tests are actually very important. This is why it, there's this movement now to, to do away with the SAT and the LSAT and the ACT and make them sort of optional when, you, when you're applying to college. I think that that is so wrongheaded uh, because it, it rather than uh, making some, uh, rather than helping someone who has been in a bad school system whose GPA is not an accurate reflection of their academic prowess, it actually takes away the ability for them to demonstrate that they have what it takes to go to a school like like Yale, like Harvard, like UCLA. Uh, and I think it's a, a really bad thing. And, uh, you know, I, the fact is that that what I, what I think most uh, 
college and and graduate level academic institutions should be doing for their uh, for their programs of admission uh, should be fundamentally okay. We're going to look at your GPA. We're going to take into account the fact that uh, you know where you went to school. If we know anything about where you went to school, and I think that most schools should favor these aptitude or these aptitude tests because they are highly reflective, especially the LSAT at the very least, of how well you will be doing in the program. Uh, but the, you know, not the not the undermine any point that you were making but i think i think i totally agree with your with your uh view on on variance in how in different in the education qualities of different high schools and colleges uh but i think that that we have a remedy to that and i don't think it's part of action i think that it's aptitude tests and sadly we're trying to put those out right now but you know i you can respond to that of course if you if you disagree with me uh, yeah, I was just um, speaking more or less to the idea that there are certainly ways that um, these um, affirmative action could have worked, but it, I think that it just really put its eggs all in the wrong basket. And people were like looking for an immediate solution for something mm. that really took, takes like a longer time. It's really more yeah. of an arduous journey rather than what we were trying to do, but what people would try to do with it. I think that really like being mindful of the curriculum and like being able to spot very gifted students early on really gets to the malleability of like seeing what they can excel at. Um, yeah. Just in terms of like what they can do or what we can do to push them and positively encourage them. Because I believe that some, to some degree that societally we don't do that enough, like especially when it comes to like, really sure. young kids, rather it's just kind of like reiterate or be able to um, store information in some degree. Like we don't really like push kids in terms of like the critical thinking skills. And I think that yeah. finding a way to um, enforce a curriculum that like engages with that obviously would really positively affect them uh, in terms of just being more um, effective and find themselves in any higher as students. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily like disagreeing with it, but I was just saying that like, no, I think I'm that, sorry, I, mis I, I misunderstood your point. That's my mistake. Please go on. Yeah, we, 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 this podcast has been very fascinating to me because I think that um, in terms of almost everything we discussed so far, I think uh, I really do enjoy these types of conversations. And, and uh, I think um, in, in terms of, I think the worst thing about a lot of um, a lot of systems is that people get attached to a, an, an idea and get attached to a like processy and don't really take into account the underpinnings of that process. Like they, they, what they concern themselves with is the underpinnings of that processy rather than mm -hmm. the processy of itself. If if um, if I can put this more succinctly, the idea that like people will love some sort of like uh, like social care or like like Obamacare or something like that. But if we can find a more effective way to do it, then we can get rid of Obamacare and sure. we can effectively ensure that more people get like care. But people look at just the, the ridding of affirmative action as simply being, oh, you don't want to see more people of different uh, minority or like disenfranchised classes. Um, get into places of high academic institutions. Mm. But that's never the case. Rather, it's just to make sure that these people aren't failing out, that they yeah. aren't like choosing to opt out of these programs because they were never situated to properly be there. For mm -hmm. example, if I was a like a student, like one of the biggest things about like like college football is that it really tests how good you are. Like you might think you're an excellent like athlete, but then when you get to um, college football, you realize how good is enough. You realize yeah. you have to be exceptional. 
you have to be uh, an, an almost like an anomaly in the system in some regard. Yeah. So like in in that way, you start to get a bigger understanding of the scale of like a skill that it will be take to even get into the NFL. And I think um, to some degree, uh, it's like a test in a way. And um, unless you're building that skill up from the foundation, you're never going to get to that properly. But for a lot of these people, when you deal with it from an action this way, the finding people who do have spark, who did have spark, who did show pros- prosper, but unfortunately, they want like built upon in a way that they could have effectively been at a higher, uh, they could have been at effective uh, higher GPA by the time they reach college. But but but, but we'll only find people at like the tail end of like the curriculum. So sure. I think that's like the most unfortunate thing about what's been going on with affirmative action. And I think that um, it, unfortunately that would be, I understand that that would probably be far more expensive, but you know, that's kind of like the biggest problem with like discipline of that nature. No, it, I, it, it would require far more observations and like looking through the like um, the classes that are ongoing with younger students to even find those students. But like that's the place we should have started. And I believe that's what our priority should have been. Yeah, no, I totally get that. That's a very good insight. Um, yeah, sorry for misunderstanding your point. I, I, that's my mistake. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, and I think that, that that comes back to what I was, uh, one thing that I was talking about earlier is that if we had, if we had done what, what you're describing, uh, or, and even if we had simply not had the regime of affirmative action and, and, uh, you know, essentially just opened the doors to, uh, to minority applicants as was done in the 60s uh, and left it at that, we would have more minor, more minorities who are lawyers, who are doctors, who are, uh, who are successful because they would have been in places where they were situated to thrive uh, and they would not have been in places where they were, uh, where they are unable to keep up because like you said, there are only so many people who are the exception. There are only so many people who get into Yale Law School is the number one law school in the country. There are only so many people who are capable of being admitted to Yale Law. And they are not just good, they're exceptional at the things that they've done uh, in in college and in and on their standardized tests, so on and so forth. Uh, and the fact is that that the the regime of affirmative action has affirmatively uh damage those people. It has caused them to drop out of school. It has caused them to uh, graduate at the bottom of their class and then been, been, be unable to find a job uh, with that degree, so on and so forth. And it's a real shame. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that the situation's been reversed. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm, uh, you're, you're, the regime that you're describing would have been far preferable and I think still uh, may very well be preferable <laughs> to what we have nowadays. But that's a good insight, man. I don't think because uh, I think that um one of the things I like because if you were to graduate the, like even if you don't get into Harvard I would find it far more preferable if like you got to Kingston or something of that nature and sure. be at the top of my class rather than being like oh someone's looking at my job prospects and they go well he graduated the bottom of like mm-hmm. Harvard that's not like a very appealing prospect when someone's going to evaluate whether or not you ought to get the job at that point because um, yeah but again I think that like um people. Like, I think affirmative action really was trying to do its best. Like, ideally, in the system of, like, oh, like, we're making the system, we're trying to do our best to make the system, like, effectively even for everyone else. I think even um, cannot be, cannot, cannot be done unless we look at the root, like, like I, I don't, unless we get to the roots of, of, of anything. Because, like, 
simply trimming the trees doesn't affect anything. Like the root cause of what's going on has to be tended to the soil. And of unless we're getting to that, then we're not doing anything really. Totally. Your education doesn't start with, with your undergrad or with your undergraduate institution. It starts in elementary school, right? I mean, there are countless people who go through uh, schools that are just very clearly uh, that underperform across the board. Uh, I mean, you hear stories constantly coming out or coming out of various uh, school systems where people uh, where you'll hear, oh, none of no one in this school uh, uh, passed the the uh, math standardized tests. Uh, you know, the 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 tests to make sure that students are are capable of doing math at their grade level, so on and so forth. And when we have so many institutions across this country uh, that that are essentially graduating people who are functionally illiterate or who are doing math at a, at a fourth grade level uh, and all these different things, it just it it leads to a cascading effect where so where no one's able to really get out of it. Uh, you know, I mean, if if you're if you're an African-American kid living in the inner city and you're going to a garbage school with garbage teachers who don't want to teach you, uh, then what hope do you have? Right. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, a massive tragedy and, and it speaks to, to a larger problem that I'm not I'm not as uh, I, I don't think I'm capable of, of solving on a on a podcast, certainly. Um, but, you know, I think that, that the state of education, in the system or in this country is. Uh, you know, remarkably bad in many situ- in many places, uh, and I think that that you know, as people, we should be doing all that we can to rectify that. Absolutely, and um, I think that it's it, it, like even like a smaller problem, a, a macro problem, if you will. If someone's mm-hmm. not engaging with the with whatever like classes they're getting, do we understand? Like, there's a significant dif- difference from not engaging with it because they feel as though the teacher isn't doing enough versus they don't think the curriculum is challenging enough. So then mm-hmm. they become yeah. interested. And these are vastly different things that could occur within like classrooms, but enough like social problems. Like I, I, I always give like um, props to a lot of um, celebrities, uh, politicians, what have you, who are like really getting into like the social prop, social um, programs that are helping kids getting that little bit of extra time to, to um, you know, get refined in whatever class they're getting to and finding out what the particular issue is. Because for um, just using myself as a more intimate example, um, if there was something I did not get and then I asked the question and I didn't understand it the second time around, my brain would go into, well, I don't want to hold up the whole class. Totally. And I would feel stupid at this point if I keep asking a question and I'm genuinely not getting it. Because at some points you need like two students, like for example, some of my, one of the greatest things they did in school um, that I went to, when I went to a really, really well off school is that they had a second teacher within the classroom that would go around and talk to individual students like, well, what do you not understand? Like when I asked the question, I said, I don't understand. Most of the time, if you have like one teacher in the classroom, they can't stop the entire class because you mm-hmm. don't understand. They got to go, well, right. I, I got to keep going if you, at some point, I can't hold the entire class also. But to have that second teacher in the classroom really like affected, like ensuring that like kids understood what was going on or like what was the fundamental misunderstanding that was occurring. It's just like little intricate things that happen on a very micro level that can be like very like crucial in some regards. Absolutely. Totally agree, man. 
Um, if you don't mind, I I probably have to go here in about ten minutes. Uh, but okay. to, to, jump, to, to jump it off on a uh, more like fun note. Oh, if you want to close out that subject matter, you certainly can. I didn't want to cut you off. It, real quick, one thing that I actually wanted to cover once I hopped on here, and this and this is not totally in the line of the same uh, topic, but it's a little bit of a shift. But uh, Sol and I chatted before I came on about, so I just got through my law school applications, and I wanted to, to take some time to give a little, or to give a little bit of advice to anyone uh, who who stumbles across this show who may be considering law school, if that's all right with you. Uh, about what they should, about how they should approach applications, so on and so forth. Is that cool? Yeah, okay. absolutely, absolutely. I was waiting for me. My apologies. No, you're, you're good, man. I'll I'll take it. I'll take silence as a yes. Uh, so, uh, so to anyone out there who stumbles across this show, who may be considering uh, law school applications, who may be considering really any type of graduate applications, but my what I know is from law school, so it may not be perfectly applicable to your discipline. Uh, I learned a few things. And I'd like to kind of cover them before before we wrap up. And uh, lesson number one that I that I want to instill in folks is uh, if you are is no matter where you are uh, uh, shooting for in school, no matter what schools you're targeting, uh, it is always advisable to get your applications in as soon as you can. Uh, and what I mean by that is. It, it, it's a huge mistake. I made this mistake, and I, I'm living it down. Uh, it, it's a huge mistake to wait around to try to pull up your GPA, for instance. I, when I came into uh, senior year of college, I had a GPA of about 3.6. Uh, I'm not sure what the, what the rest of the digits were, um, but I wanted to pull my grades up a little bit uh, because I had this sort of sense that I that that. Getting it up to you know three seven would help me. It's not going to. I'm just gonna. This may hurt anyone who who is going through the same thought process, but it's not gonna help you. Uh, if you have a student who has a three six and a one seventy uh, on their LSAT, and you have a student who has a three seven and a one seventy on their LSAT, but the, but the student with three seven turns their application in six months after the student with three six. The student with three seven is going to have something like a thirty percent lower chance uh, of getting into those school to, to that school that they're applying to uh, than is the student who gets it in early. Uh, don't fall for it. It's something that a lot of students do. They wait around to get their their grades in and get their GPAs up. It's not advisable. The only circumstance in which it is ever advisable is if you are in a position to get your GPA over their over the school's median. If if the school's median is three eight and you're at a three seven nine, it may be advisable. That's the only circumstance. And even then, it is the the benefits that you'll get from it is marginal. So do not do that. Uh, that's lesson one. Lesson two is play the game. Uh, and what I mean by this is if you are, I, I'm, if you couldn't figure it out through the rest of this podcast, I'm a conservative, big shock. Uh, but uh, what I mean by play the game is when you're writing your personal statement, do not reference conservative thoughts. Don't reference conservative philosophy. Don't do anything like that because no matter how we look at it, no matter how, no matter in what way you parse the data, the fact is that applications uh, offices universally are filled with people who disagree with you politically very vehemently. And if you reference uh, 
uh, Ayn Rand, and you talk about how much you love Ayn Rand. This was I listened to a to a podcast from the University of Michigan where, where their uh, academic or where their dean of of uh, admissions talks talks about applications, and she went on and on for an entire episode about how she rejected a student because he talked about Ayn Rand a whole lot in his personal statement. Play the game. Be a, a, either do not discuss your politics in any way whatsoever. Don't even hint at them. Even if you're talking about them in the larger context of philosophy or something like that, do not hint that you or that you uh, are anything that will uh, irk an admissions officer because they don't like you, generally speaking, and it will really hurt your chances. Um, but those are the two big pieces of, of advice that I have. I'm sorry that, the, that I was rambling here. Uh, but other than that, um, you know, make sure that you don't kind of flail on the LSAT. Don't take the LSAT four times. I had a friend who wanted to take the LSAT over and over and over again until he got the score that he wanted. What you should do is you should study for the LSAT very hard. You should take it once, maybe twice, get the score that you're looking for, and never touch it again. Because, you know, you, you, the LSAT's fundamental. Don't mess around with that. And those are really the three fundamental pieces of, of advice that I've got for law school applications. Um, I hope it helps someone out there, even if it's only one person. It's been worthwhile. Um, thank you. Um, and I don't think you've ever, I don't think you've been rambling personally. I think you've been very in articulate, incredibly articulate, if I may add. And um, I appreciate it. Yeah, in terms of uh, there being people out there that could that could like decline your application purely off of like political like uh, predilections, I, I would highly advise the same. In terms of being apolitical, I understand the principle of uh, ensuring that like everybody, regardless of political like path paths might be. Uh, you would want to uh, ensure that everyone is capable of speaking unfeathered. But due to the, uh, I just think like in terms of uh, the confrontation that is often arising nowadays and how like speakers are actively being advised from really being part of any sort of campus, it's best to play it safe and uh, speak as apolitical as possible. I I absolutely agree. I mean, it's there's just no question about it. Uh, it's especially true if you're conservative. I, you know, I hate to say it, uh, but the fact is that that uh, conservatives will be actively downgraded, even if it's sort of just in the admissions officer's mind uh, when they're reviewing your your application. Left wingers generally will not be, or at the very least, they won't be as much. But uh, to your point, it's totally advisable to just stay as apolitical as possible. Um, play the game. Say what you need to say, uh, so that you so that when someone reads your personal statement, they'll like it. But yeah, man, if you want if you, if you want to jump to another topic, please do. I just wanted to get that little uh, tidbit in before we wrapped up. Yeah, it's certainly unfortunate, especially since I think that um, in terms of batches of like critical thought, I definitely believe that college should be that last place where we, we really do exercise our thoughts. But in terms of uh, Wrapping up the podcast and just like leaving off on a more fun note, I would like to ask you a question about the boys. And we're not talking about the sure. drinks neither. Um, the boys, <laughs> what would be your like favorite episode and um, or an episode that you believe has a very um, poignant message? Oh, God, it's been a while since I watched the show. Um, let me think for a minute here. You're putting me on the spot about something that, that I've that has been out of my head for a year, unfortunately. But let me think. 
Um, you know, one thing that I, one episode that I really did enjoy was it was in the most recent season. It was the the episode where uh, Soldier Boy, the the main villain of the most recent season, is uh, is woken up and he's he's acclimating to the new world, or, or, or really he's not acclimating. Uh, but what he's this this great sort of uh, uh, I guess commentary. Uh, it, I don't really know if it's a commentary, but but at the very least, he is an image of uh, it, it's basically what what Captain America pretends to be, but what he really would be like if he had been woken up in the 21st century. Uh, you know, this guy's walking around. He's he's flagrantly racist. He's you know just this this uh, villain character basically, and he and everyone is in shock and aghast by what he says all the time. And it's kind of fun. It's just on a very basic level. It's funny because it's this this guy who's a fish out of, a total fish out of water. And not only that, he he wants to be the fish out of water because he still believes that he's right because he's you know he's just not adapted to the time. Um, and I you know it probably has a social commentary of of. Uh, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, the same social commentary that the show m- it makes about a lot of people, uh, about basically everyone is kind of just a product of their environment. And, uh, and uh, you know, the social commentary is neither here nor there, but I personally found his, his character a really funny kind of play on the classic Captain America. What would happen if we dropped a man from the 1940s uh, onto a 21st century street in uh, urban city? <laughs> it's, just, it, it's a really great, uh, take on the on that circumstance. I love it. I think it's hilarious. Everyone should go watch it. Um, just to bring it uh, in to uh, someone episodes that we liked a lot is uh, A Train's uh, death per se. Uh, a Train uh, after the uh, hero yeah. orgy occurs, AJ a- takes um, retribution upon um, one of the heroes that crippled his brother. Decided yeah. to run him accelerating speed. Just completely just. Been roading the, the the absolute fuck out of him. Uh, if if I could be vulgar for one second, but uh, no in his in his in his circumstance, uh, A Train gives up basically his life. He sacrifices his life to get revenge in this very moment. And mm. in this moment in time, A Train is thinking of someone other than himself. He has been very much true. He's been cowardice in the face of Homelander. He's given up altruistic heroes, the most ideal heroes when Starlight was talking about working in tandem with another hero to basically overthrow Homelander. And in this very moment, this is one of the instances in which he thinks of something other than himself. He literally could not use his powers because, well, his heart couldn't handle it. And so it was just such an amazing moment. And honestly, I thought the character could have departed from the series added um had they decided to keep him dead at that point yeah, in the series. Totally agree. That you're right, that was a great scene. It was a great it, it was a great character arc. I mean it's just it's not to we'll wrap up here in a second. I'm sorry for going on, but but it was a great uh, moment where this guy has just been totally self centered throughout his entire uh, tenure on the show. He's a he's just you know scum of the earth villain. He, there's no one that's more uh, uh, that's more sort of antagonizable. And in his last moment, what's he doing? He's actually doing a good thing. It's a, and his heart literally gives out from it. It's so good. It's a great, a great moment in the show. But man, yeah. thanks for it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, sorry. yes, I'm disagreeing with what you're saying. Um, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, hey, man, thanks for having me on. I got to take off. Uh, I hate that we can't keep it going, but but it's been a real pleasure. Um, uh, thanks for, for you and Sola for putting this together. And uh, with any luck, hopefully I'll be back on for a future episode sometime. But thank you for having me, whether or not that's the case. Always a pleasure. It was an excellent episode. I'm glad we talked about a myriad of topics. And um, I know that we have different views, but it's just so great to have like something of a very productive conversation in the way we had it here. Um, to the audience, uh, this is Hayden Dialects. Uh, you've seen us all in HD. Unfortunately, we won't have Sola giving his official sign out, but hopefully you enjoyed this episode nevertheless. Until next time. Peace.